0: So the book came out and it was going to fail. And then Roger Ebert from Siskel and Ebert discovered his email was in the book. And he got really mad at me. So he called up the Wall Street Journal and they wrote a front page story about it. Which is the best way to sell a book. <laughs> right. So I was done. And as each one of these books unfolded, followed by Lynchpin, which then led to Icarus Deception. In each case, what I'm saying to people is, I see you and I hear you and I know where that fear lies. And I think if we talk about it and I can give you some narrative, you can start pulling yourself out of it. And what I can tell you is that the feedback I've gotten from the later work is so much more valuable to me than hearing from someone who built a billion dollar company and at least five people built billion dollar companies on permission marketing. Because my goal is not to help people build a billion dollar company. It's to help them become the human that they want to be.
1: How do you find the courage to go off the beaten path? This is Love Your Work, and I'm David cadavy I'm here to help you cut off the noise to focus. I first discovered the work of Seth Godin about... 13 years ago. Since then, he's helped me think about how to make work that's remarkable with the Purple Cow. He's shown me how to think about having a direct relationship with my customers, with permission marketing. He's shown me how to push through when things get tough with the dip. Plus, countless other things. He's written so many books, Tribes, The Icarus Deception, All Marketers Are Liars, just to name a few more. He writes a blog post every day, and I still love going to Seth's blog. It looks like it came from another time. It's on TypePad. He doesn't have a custom domain, and still it's one of the few sites that I visit directly just to read what's there. While people are screaming about how you've got to figure out a Snapchat strategy, Seth just sticks with good old-fashioned words, and he's so good at it. Seth has been on the forefront of how technology changes, how we communicate with one another. He started his first email newsletter in 1990. In fact, he invented the concept of getting emails from companies. Throughout his career, he's pointed out and described what this new paradigm makes possible. You have to unleash the idea virus, you have to tell stories, you have to build your tribe. But more recent years, he's focused more on helping people overcome the emotional barriers of actually putting this advice into practice. And this is what I was interested in figuring out coming into this interview. What was it that caused that shift? And how does Seth think about doing this generous work? And how can somebody gain the courage to do something that might not work? I also wanted to dig back further into Seth's origins. I'm still struck by how far ahead of his time he was way back in the 80s and 90s and how long it took for some of those concepts to gel and to become true. It's a good lesson that if you want to do work that resonates with people, sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes a very long time. And um, speaking of things taking a long time, this episode today feels like a big turning point for the show, uh, along with the recent iTunes feature. Um, You know, We've had a ton of amazing guests, but... I've been trying to get Seth on Love Your Work since it started more than a year and a half ago. I, I was interviewing Jason Fried. I saw uh, a copy of Rework on the conference table and I saw Seth Godin's blurb on the, the copy and I thought, oh, I need to email Seth Godin. So I emailed him, uh, got to no, know him, followed up a couple, few few different times and you know he finally agreed to come on the show. And actually I'm gonna ask him on the show why he finally decided uh, to come on. But in, in any case, you are a part of this. So thank you for subscribing on Overcast and Apple Podcasts. And thank you for writing reviews, which you can do at kadavy.net slash review. And also thank you to those Love Your Work Premium members out there. We have a couple of new members, Julian Ganter and Chrissy Chavez. Thank you so much. And if you would like to hear episodes like this one here with Seth Godin, well before everyone else does, check out Love Your Work Premium at Cadvy.net slash premium. And this episode is brought to you by FreshBooks, which is another company that has been ahead of the game in so many ways. Uh, FreshBooks was founded by Mike McDermott almost 15 years ago, straight from his parents' basement. And now FreshBooks is all grown up. In fact, it's been completely rebuilt from the ground up. And we're not talking about a simple redesign here, though it is stunningly beautiful and an absolute joy to use. With FreshBooks, you can send your clients beautiful invoices. You can track expenses and keep cash flow coming in by staying on top of your outstanding invoices. FreshBooks users get paid up to four days faster. And FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to my listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com loveyourwork and enter loveyourwork in the how did you hear about us section. Now, I am thrilled to bring you Seth Godin. Seth I don't remember all the details about the first time that it came across your work. What I do remember was it was about 13 years ago. I was sitting in a gray cubicle in Omaha, Nebraska. And what I remember, I remember the top of your head. So is there a story behind <laughs> is there a story behind uh how the top of your head became uh something that you were you were connecting your brand to back then? Yeah, it's actually. Um, sort of useful. <clears throat> I, uh, I was, a I
0: knew the guys who I met at a conference who started Fast Company Magazine. And I was trying to persuade them to let me have a column. But the problem is Fast Company didn't have any columns. But in talking to Bill Taylor, he said, well, why don't we just write an article about this work you're doing? So they wrote an article about permission marketing, and they sent Greg Smale to take my photo. And I didn't know better, so I art directed the shoot because I realized that if you can make your, the photo of you better, more people will look at it in the magazine. And Greg was fabulous about it, and we spent the whole day together. And I did came up with as many variations as I could. So then, the, so he had this photo of me cut from the nose up, looking up because I knew I was bald. And um, then I sold the book permission marketing to Simon and Schuster. My editor was 60 years old, and he had been Nabokov's editor. So that was his lineage. He was from literature. He didn't really care about my book, and he didn't really care about me. And he's a nice guy, though. And so Fred said to me, I said to Fred, do you mind if I just make a cover? And he said, sure, whatever. So I called up Greg, and I said, this is the best photo I can find. And it was a breakthrough, because in those days, business books didn't have covers like that. Now they all do. But that was the very first time anyone had ever done anything creative like that with a book cover. And as a result, two things happened. One, I sold more books. But more important, um, I acted as if. And so I was acting like a famous author, even though I wasn't one. And by acting as if, I became a famous author.
1: And you were acting as if you were a famous author because you, you gave yourself sort of creative license to make this bold decision. Is that what you mean?
0: Well, yeah. You, you don't put the picture of a non-famous author on the cover of a book because the editor says, who's that? Right. But because my picture was on the cover, people assumed they hadn't been informed yet that I was important. And so it had a totally different posture in every in all the interactions the book had in the world.
1: And then was there, was there something also to the fact that it was, it was such an iconic picture in a well, way? It, know, wasn't, it was really unusual to show just have a bald head. Yeah, it uh, wasn't iconic a, a
0: until after. And now I regularly get emails from people who send me pictures of other people and companies who have ripped off that look and said, you should go after that guy. And I'm like, you know what? I can't protect the idea of a bald head halfway on the page look with eyes looking up. But no, I did that first and then it spread. And that's the lesson for a creative. The lesson is if you're in the business of copying other people's work, you're never going to be able to invent a thing that spreads. But the way to invent something that spreads is to do it before you're ready. Because if you're ready, it'll be too late.
1: Well, yeah, and I guess what, what I mean by iconic is just as a designer from a design standpoint, is, is the simplicity of it all. Um, but was, was there anything, did you have any hesitation about like, mm, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't make my cover like this. Maybe I should make it like some of the business books that are out there.
0: Um, I had hesitation a really long time ago and learned the hard way that if you want to make change happen, you can't listen to the hesitation. So by the time 1998 rolled around, the hesitation was gone.
1: Yeah. Because by that time you had already published yeah four, four or five books, you know, 120. What's that?
0: 120.
1: Oh, as as a publisher? As a
0: packager. So as a package, what packagers yeah. do is invent books the way movie producers invent movies. So sometimes I put my name on it. Sometimes I wrote it. Sometimes I have no visible fingerprints on it. But I did a book a month for 10 years with my team.
1: So you really got a lot of practice in understanding how to package a book and, and how to make something marketable. Now, I remember hearing you say that one of your first book ideas was something like How to Hypnotize Your Friends to Act Like Chickens. Yes, sir. And that was obviously uh, not a book that you, you, you probably wouldn't have come up with that idea knowing the things that you know now. Is that correct?
0: No. Actually, no. I think that the mistake was that the editors in 1987, didn't want to publish a book that would sell a lot of copies and embarrass them at the same time. And I thought that what they wanted to do was sell a lot of copies. So my mistake was believing that my customer had the same objectives that I had. And so shifting gears and willingly becoming an author who could play at the same uh, key as the editors who were my middlemen was essential, but if I was publishing on the Kindle today, I would be much more likely to publish a book like that, uh, a silly, edgy uh thought provoking thing than I would to publish the kind of book they wanted to publish in eighty six because in eighty six if you got shelf space in the bookstore, it was going to sell now, the bookstore is infinitely large. And because it's infinitely large, the ones that break through are ones that are on the edge, not ones that are in the middle.
1: So so actually, what, what that would that book have been about? How to well, hypnotize your friends to act like chicken here, here's, the
0: contents. There were two books from that era that I was particular that I thought were particularly clever. That one and the fortune cookie construction set. So the fortune cookie construction set had the following thesis. In 1986, you could not find a recipe for fortune cookies. There was no cookbook sold in the United States that had a recipe for fortune cookies in it because they're not Chinese and they're not American. So the first page is, here's the recipe for fortune cookies because there was a need for that. And then the rest of the hundred pages were little tiny perforated fortunes that you could tear out and put inside. So Henny Youngman fortunes, fortunes about politics, just funny, interesting fortunes. This is a great urban outfitter, cash register type book. It would have worked. And then the one about chickens is there are hypnotists who do stage hypnosis. They know how to get people to come on stage and do silly things. So I was going to find a hypnotist who was going to teach me how to do it. And then I was going to come up with 10 things you can get your friends to do after you hypnotize them. And again, in 1986, before the web, if you wanted to learn how to hypnotize people to do parlor tricks, you couldn't figure out how to do that. So that was my initial approach to the market. I was bad marketing in the sense that my middlemen were important to me. But now that the middlemen are gone, what we see is that everyone has their own media channel. Everyone has their own microphone. And if you want to be known for a thing, no one's going to stop you. I don't want to be known for teaching people how to hypnotize their friends. So that's why I wouldn't do it. But as a cultural slash business venture, it's the kind of thing that keeps showing up now.
1: So were those book ideas before, after, during this period of time where you gained all this experience packaging books?
0: They were part of the 800 rejections I got in a row my first year. That the first year, I sold the first book the first day, and then I got 850 or so rejections from 30 of the best publishers in the world. And I was lost, and I was broke, and I was frustrated, and it wasn't working. And then I met a guy who told me how he did it. And not only did I learn how to be in the book business, I learned how to be in the world. So he would take his proposal after if he had done it on a word processor and have his secretary type it on a typewriter. And he didn't wear suits to meetings. He wore a blazer. And he engaged with editors who wanted to hear from him, not just anyone he could reach. So he became the author they wanted to publish. And once I understood that, I stopped making spreadsheets. I stopped proving how smart I was. I stopped saying, I'm right, you're wrong. And instead, I did one of the biggest secrets of marketing, which is what people really want to hear is, you were right all along. So if you could say to an editor, that thing you wanted, you were right all along. Here it is. They will publish it. And so I leave made confirmation. Yeah, and I so I made books I was proud of. I did the Stanley Kaplan SAT prep books. I did the Beer and Ladies books. I did the Business Almanac, the People Magazine Celebrity Almanac, the Women's Almanac. I did books on gardening. I did four books with Jay Levinson. Big complicated books that most people couldn't handle. I had a team of people who knew how to deal with data and layout. I did novels for teenagers about Nintendo games. We were just enough ahead of our time that we could make good stuff. And we sold millions and millions of books. But that started, I didn't hit my stride till
1: 88. And I did it till like 93. So the the, the five to 10 years that you were on the verge of bankruptcy or the nine years that you were eating beans and rice was like uh, early 80s to late 80s? 86 to 90, 95
0: I was busy. Every time I made a nickel, I would spend a dime to build the next thing. And so while I was building the book packaging thing, I also started one of the first internet companies in the world. And I had to explain to people what email was. And I had to explain to people that these interactions were worth something. And so I would go to the book business for an hour, then go across the hall to the people in the internet company, and then back to the book business. And I was doing both with my own nickels. And there weren't a lot of nickels.
1: And you started your first email newsletter in like 1990 or something. So do you have any recollection of the moment or moments when you discovered that, oh, this is, this is something different?
0: Well, so what I've always wanted to do is be able to put on a show for people who want to see it and create this change as a teacher. What I've never wanted to do was build an, a a significant enterprise. I've never wanted to be a quote businessman. That's not interesting. I do it when I have to, because I need a client who will hire me. So what I did, I left Spinnaker Software in 86. And so I knew a lot about interactivity, but the software business was in the tank. And Prodigy asked me to create some stuff for them. Prodigy was before AOL. I know you've talked to Steve I Case. I never Prodigy
1: for sure, yeah.
0: And Prodigy had a giant problem. And their problem was, if you used the service a lot, they lost money on you because it was flat fee. And if you didn't use the service at all, they lost money on you because it was really expensive to get you to sign up and then you were going to quit. So they needed a way to get people to use the service for seven or 10 minutes a week. And Prodigy said, can you help us with this problem? So I invented this online trivia game that was the most successful online product of all time at at the time. And it had millions of people playing it for exactly seven minutes a week. And at the end of seven minutes, you couldn't play it anymore. And so I saved Prodigy $100 million in churn. And I was thrilled because I invented something on a yellow pad that 3 million people loved that solved my client's problem. And I said, I'd like to do that again. And that's when I started to understand the power of interactivity and ultimately email. Because the thing about email was Prodigy, CompuServe, AOL, they didn't talk to each other. If you built a piece of software on one platform, you couldn't use it on the other one. But what they all had in common was email. So if I built an email machine, I could do anything I wanted with people on all three platforms without them having to build any software. So that's how I got into the email thing.
1: So your thought process then was kind of, your, your client had this problem. They, they wanted people to use the services for a small amount of time. And then did you kind of reverse engineer from that?
0: Right. So the question was, all right, if it's only a small amount of time, I can't build something like Mist or Zork where you, know, you want to get deep, deep, deep into it. I have to build something where you have a satisfying engagement, but then one that doesn't last very long and you can't wait till the next one. So one of those models was chess-by-mail. There are people who have play, have chess games that have been going on for a year. Because so you make a move, you write it down on a postcard, you mail it to the person you're playing against. Five days later, they get the postcard, they make a move, they mail it back. So if you're halfway through a chess-by-mail game, you're not going to stop. Because you've invested four months already. So that was the thinking.
1: And it's amazing to me kind of how long it seems that you are – incubating some of these ideas before they become something. Like with permission marketing, So that was 1998, 99?
0: The book came out in 99 and I invented the idea in 89. So it was 10 years of building a company. Then I didn't name it until 96 because the name was critical. And that's another huge lesson here. We used, it took us, our clients were like American Express, Carter, Wallace, Procter and Gamble, the blue chips, but it would take six months to make a sale. Now we would, a sale was a quarter of a million dollars, but it would take six months. And I realized after a while that the reason it took so long is they didn't know what to call it. They didn't know what to say to their boss. It wasn't, it was, it was again, acting as if, well, if this is a form of marketing, Of course you need to have it because you have all the other forms of marketing. Turns out permission marketing is a form of marketing. Once people got that memo, we were able to do a sale in 18 hours because we'd say, do you need what permission marketing does? Because that's what we sell. And if you can find anyone else who sells it to you better or cheaper, you should buy it from them. We were the only ones, so we were able to scale.
1: And something that strikes me as kind of a precursor to permission marketing was uh, email addresses of the rich and famous. I guess precursor is a very nice way to say it. It was actually anathema, the opposite.
0: It was what happened if Satan wanted to undermine permission marketing. It was a fun project, but it was off-brand and inappropriate. And it was when my book packager life misaligned with my internet marketer life. What you're saying is that you're very proud of it. At some level that I had the guts to do it. No one would have ever heard of the book, just for people who are listening. It's a directory of 2,000 email addresses of people who were famous or organizations that had email addresses. This was back in the day when that was actually rare, right? And so the book came out and it was going to fail. And then Roger Ebert from Siskel and Ebert discovered his email was in the book and he got really mad at me. So he called up the wall street journal and they wrote a front page story about it, which is the best way to sell a book. <laughs> right. So
1: I was done. Well, I guess what I'm thinking is that permission marketing is, is kind of about how you can engage directly with your customer. And I, maybe this is a, a few steps of, of, uh, abstraction, but email addresses of the rich and famous, you can you can get in touch with anybody now.
0: Right. That's what the first page said. And the second page said, please, please, please do not copy all of these addresses and spam everyone in the book. Don't do that. And then everyone did that. And so the problem was I was trusting human nature, and that was my mistake.
1: Yeah. Who would have thought? Um. Uh- so it seems like if I look at the evolution of of your work, that there is this sort of embracing technology thing with Smiley Dictionary and uh, email addresses of the rich and famous, and then you start getting into these uh, sort of tactical frameworks for marketing, such as permission marketing and um, un- unleash the idea of unleashing the idea virus, another great one, and then these days it seems like you are helping people with the emotional layer of, of facing the fears and getting the bravery to try things that are uh, different and new. Right. Is, is, so, that, uh, is, that a, is that because, how does the evolution work?
0: So the, evolu- the evolution works like this. I uh, gave my book packaging company to my employees in 1997 so I could work full-time to build the internet thing. So I was done being in the book business and permission marketing needed a book and I was the best person to write it. So I wrote it and then I was done being in the book business completely because I'd had my bestseller. Why do I need to write another book? I sold my company Yahoo. I joined Yahoo and um, then a whole bunch of things happened in my personal life that caused me to take a really long nine month deep breath. And then Malcolm Gladwell sent me a copy of the tipping point. And what happened was I started typing and I had a galley before the the tipping point came out because I wrote a blurb for him. And two weeks later, I had finished typing Unleashing the Idea Virus. I wrote that book in two weeks because obviously I'd been thinking about it for a long time, but I didn't know that. And once I put that book in the world and it spread, I thought, oh, I get it. I can now build a life of making an important statement once a year because I like books and I know how to make them now. But people started coming to me and say, I get permission marketing, I get the idea virus, I get purple cow, but I can't do it. My boss won't let me. And that question, my boss won't let me, really sat with me. So that helped me understand that the problem isn't they don't know what to do. The problem is they're telling themselves a story that is sabotaging their ability to do it. And if I can't help them on the human level, all the tactics in the world aren't going to work. So go all the way back to email addresses and rich and famous. The reason people acted like jerks and ignored what I wrote at the front was because they didn't see themselves as non-jerks. They didn't see themselves as people could actually benefit both sides by having an actual honest engagement with Roger Ebert. They were just stuck, filled with fear, trolling people. And if I could help heal some of that, then I felt like the culture would get better. We'd have more artists, which we need. We'd have fewer rapacious hedge fund managers, which we don't need. And we could create bureaucracies not filled with people looking for deniability, but filled with people who are using their leverage to make things better. So that led to tribes. And tribes was really where I pivoted and said, look, everyone has these tools now. Stop telling me your boss won't let you. Start taking responsibility. We don't need you to manage. We need you to lead. We need you to make work that matters. And as each one of these books unfolded, followed by Linchpin, which then led to Icarus Deception, in each case, what I'm saying to people is, I see you and I hear you and I know where that fear lies. And I think if we talk about it and I can give you some narrative, you can start pulling yourself out of it. And what I can tell you is that the feedback I've gotten from the later work is so much more valuable to me Than hearing from someone who built a billion-dollar company, and at least five people built billion-dollar companies on permission marketing. Because my goal is not to help people build a billion-dollar company. It's to help them become the human that they want to be. And that's what I've always wanted to do with this teaching. But I needed a customer, a middleman who would help me do it. And so now, thanks to the web, I reach a million people every day with my blog. I can whisper to them and start them on a path. And on a good day i make progress in that and on a bad day i get distracted but that's my mission
1: i think this ties into something that i saw in the title tag of your blog not too uh not too long ago you know a title tag saying what the blog is about one of the words was respect
0: right exactly
1: and it that it, i think respect is something that takes a lot of courage actually to be able to uh, to execute correctly because you have to fight against the lizard brain. I think you're the first person that I ever heard uh, refer to the lizard brain. The lizard brain wants to uh, get the short-term gain, but to to treat people with respect, you have to go beyond that. Exactly. Does that sound right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, you there's a great podcast called Hardcore History and um i love it and dan did a 14 hour segment on genghis khan and i learned so much first of all an interesting trivial aside more humans on earth are related to genghis khan than any other person and the reason is that he was a serial rapist and um just horrible but one of the things that genghis khan would do is he would surround your village and then he'd say you guys have two choices you can surrender in which case we'll just take your stuff. Or you can fight us, in which case we'll kill you all. And no matter what you did, they would still kill you all. It was the mo- it, it, this man lived in a time when violence was everything and he was extraordinarily disrespectful. Well, now we're living in this time where very few of us are shooting at each other with bows and arrows, but a lot of people are using words at each other. And we can use words at each other to amplify our best work and to treat each other with respect. Or we can use words at each other in this status game of pushing everybody down. And it feels to me like this is an urgent moment for human beings to say, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And that just because there's anonymous hatred online doesn't mean I need to be part of it. And... Our new economy is now based on trust more than anything else. We want to engage with people we can count on. And trust is acquired by being respectful.
1: It's so easy with, uh, with technology today to, to be disrespectful because it, uh, you can just have an impulse and, and then next thing you know, you're, you are sending off, sending off the words. Um, I guess this ties into the fact that you don't use Twitter. And part of the reason you don't use Twitter is because of all of that stuff, which really just distracts you from, from doing what you do best. So it's like a, a larger representation of, of this idea of fighting against the, the fear-based mentality to uh, build the respect-based mentality. Does that sound accurate to you? That's
0: a big part of it. And the other part of it is there is no human being I can name who can point to a body of work on Twitter and say, I am proud of that. So that means all that time was spent not building a body of work you are proud of. And we ought to be doing that. That there's never been a better time to have an idea. There's never been a better time to be a writer or a singer or a speaker or a podcaster. Never been a better time to figure out how to help other people than right now. But instead, we spent an hour watching cat videos. And I, I, it's easiest that I, the easiest way I know is I got rid of my television. I don't use social media because it forces me, if I want to do anything, to do something I can be proud of instead.
1: And do you think that if you had the television and you were using social media, that you would find yourself using those things when you oh, would rather yeah. do something else? I mean, I used to watch
0: three hours of television a night four when I was a teenager. And then it went down to two. And then when Seinfeld was on, it was 30 minutes. And when Seinfeld went off, I was done. But so you get three hours of TV. Most people go to four hours of meeting a day. That's seven. And then two or three hours on social media. Now you're at 10. So that's 10 hours a day. I don't spend doing what other people do to entertain themselves. You can get a lot done in 10 hours.
1: I think this is a a calculation that a lot of successful people Make At some point, they look at these idle ways or these ways to pass the time, such as television, um, and they make this calculation that, oh, I could do something else with this time. This is opportunity costs lost. So do you remember what that process was like for you? Well, unlike
0: many people, I came up professionally in a complete panic because I was so close to going bankrupt. And I knew that if I hit the bottom, I could get a job. I knew that, you know, if you have an MBA, you could be a bank teller or something. And I desperately did not want that. I knew it would destroy me. So even though I worked from home by myself, I never took a nap. That was the real, that was the gateway drug. And I knew if I took one nap, it was over. Because then I would take a nap every day. And once you start taking a nap every day, well, then how do you balance that? Because for me, taking a nap was failing. And I, so then I created these habits for myself of if I'm at home, I'm off duty. Harder to do now with smartphones. Present with humans. And if I'm on duty, I'm on duty. And I'm running as fast as I can because I love running. But this in-between state just has no appeal to me.
1: Do you remember what your kind of internal monologue was at that time that you were able to be that I, I I guess the only word I can think of is ruthless in managing your your time and your energy? Well, I was afraid.
0: I was deeply, deeply afraid. I was wounded. I was a failure. The promises I was making to the people around me, I was having trouble keeping. I wasn't able to persuade my clients to give me money. And I really wanted to run away. And I knew what it would feel like to run away. And so if it felt like that, I wasn't going to do it.
1: What were you telling yourself when you uh, felt like a failure? Or what, what made you think that you were a failure?
0: Well, 850 rejection letters in a row will do that to you, I hope. Um, you know, I worked for four months to get a meeting with Levi Strauss to pitch them my interactive permission marketing concept, flew across the country with money I didn't have. At the time I was switching from a Toshiba laptop to a different laptop. I don't remember which kind. So I brought both with me. So I'd have the data. Uh, I show up in the guy's conference room and there's someone else who has the same meeting time as me. And the guy comes out And he turns to the second guy, and he's just cruel to him, saying he never had a meeting, leave my office. It was just inappropriate. So I'm like, wow, this guy's really cruel. So I go into his office, and I open my laptop to start giving the presentation. And the guy's half bored. And I get to the fourth slide, and the laptop starts on fire. Smoke (laughs) starts coming out of the Toshiba. Wow. And I was so fortunate. I got to do something almost no one has ever been able to do in history. I close the laptop. I put it in his garbage can. I reach into my bag. I pull out the other laptop and I open it up and I continue without missing a beat, which is, was a great solace at the time. But I was not even close to closing that sale. And so it's a long flight home. And it's a flight home when, when you get back to the office. We were all in one big room. There are probably 14 of us. I have to walk into that office and I'm the dad who's supposed to come home with the money and the briefcase. I don't even have the computer anymore. I lost the magic beans. And you got to turn to people and say, not yet. That was hard.
1: We're going to take a quick break. If you're a freelancer or you run a small business, you know it's important to get paid. And the more painless you can make it to get paid, the more you can concentrate on your craft. There's really no better system out there for getting yourself paid than FreshBooks. It's like mission control for everything about getting paid. Besides beautiful invoice templates, FreshBooks has time tracking. It will also automatically pull in your bank account data and categorize your expenses. FreshBooks will even remind your clients to pay you. You can skip the awkward follow-up emails, and if that wasn't enough, FreshBooks will even suggest to you quick wins. These are actions that you can take on outstanding invoices and build time that will keep your business running profitably and will get you paid. So with all this, you can imagine how FreshBooks users get paid up to four days faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to my listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com loveyourwork and enter love your Work." in the How Did You Hear About Us section. To live a balanced life and do your best work, you've got to sleep well. You also need to eliminate hassles, hassles like shopping for a mattress. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress for a shockingly fair price that you can get delivered to your door with no hassles. It combines supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, Casper is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. And I'm one of those happy customers. I had a Casper when I lived in Chicago, and if I lived in the U.S. again, I would immediately order another Casper. Casper is designed, developed, and assembled in the United States, and Casper has free shipping and returns to the United States and Canada. Try Casper for 100 nights, risk-free, in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash love it. Use the promo code love it terms and conditions apply. What kind of company was this? Was this considered like a, a, a publisher? That, we that were. This were was,
0: was Yo-Yo Dine. This was the internet company okay. I started that invented. If you have ever gotten an email that you wanted to get from a corporation, not spam, but when you wanted to get, like Eddie Bauer, 50% off coupon or Groupon
1: or Kickstarter, we invented that. I invented that. That was what we did. Okay. And when you were getting these rejections, so first of all, the 800-some rejection letters, is that because the 30-some publishers each had se- yeah. v- several imprints?
0: Exactly. The magic and so, of book publishing still to this day is if you have a stamp you're allowed to send a proposal 10 pages and if they like it they send you money not only that you can send it to multiple people at the same time so I would come up with an idea send it to 20 people and all together that would cost me you know eight dollars and then 20 people would send me a letter saying we hate your idea you do that again and again and again until you come up with one where someone writes back and says we like your idea here's some money
1: and you were going direct to publishers. You, you were you were going uh, no agents. No agents. Book packagers rarely
0: have an agent because gotcha. the book packager is also supposed to be clever enough to be an agent.
1: Okay, this ties into something that I've been that I've struggled with. Is it, my my first book I got really lucky and uh, it it did pretty well. And then I've been trying to write a second book, but I sent I've sent it to uh, I sent it to several agents and knows from all of them, but great feedback, you know, and, and the people were always saying, oh, you should just self-publish. But I think a lot of people under, underestimate the value of what somebody who's in the book business brings to a book. Um, so I think that's one thing to talk about. And then the second thing I think is how to strike that balance between valuing what the gatekeepers can do and just being delusional about your own ideas.
0: Okay. So I've just sent you uh, three links and uh, I don't want to repeat everything that's in them, but basically a book publisher adds much, much less value than she used to because the book publisher is optimized to serve the bookstore, but the bookstore is only selling 25% of all the books. So you're going through all these hoops just to reach a quarter of the market. The second problem is that uh, if you can get a great advance for a book, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you should take it. But if you can't, it doesn't make any sense to wait a year, give up control of your copyright, give up the bulk of the income so that 25% of the people in the bookstore can hold this item in their hand. It's economically unstable. And book publishers are fighting desperately to stay alive, but it's not easy the main thing that people want from a book publisher today is validation and reassurance. So you can say, well, it's not me. Penguin wants you to read this book, right? Then I'm here on behalf of my publisher that I got picked. And that feeling is worth a lot. I'm not sure it's worth as much as a publisher charges you to get that feeling. So if I were entering the field today, I would obsess about publishing on the Kindle, And realize it doesn't cost any money at all to deliver that to people and you get to keep 70% of the money. And then realize that if you're publishing yourself, you have the most committed publisher in the world. And that means you're going to be the one who gets good at telling your story, building your tribe, building a permission asset, and being able to do this for a living. So yes, some people are still going to make it. Someone's going to sell a great piece of genre fiction that's going to sell a million copies and they're going to get a big advance. And I think that's fabulous and I'm not against it. But a million books got published in the United States last year. And of those, a hundred were breakthrough bestsellers for new authors. So if you like those odds, go for it. But I don't like those odds.
1: I think that, yes, the validation is good. I know my my first book was with a... Regular publisher, I don't think I could have possibly finished the book sure. without that validation and and them saying here's some money, you know, here's some deadlines, yeah, and an editor to hound you to get it done. Uh, I guess the thing that I've discovered this time around is, and why I kind of think I was lucky last time was that the the first version of my proposal, at least, I can look at it now and be like, this is. This is written by somebody who doesn't understand. Sure, why a person buys a book, and uh, how to title a book, and how to how to package it. Yep, right. And this is something that you learned. You had a lot of experience packaging books. I don't know if you take that knowledge for granted or not. But no, no, something that,
0: uh, I have a priceless amount of wisdom. And if I was interested in being a consultant, I could stay busy all day long. But my point is. You can't cede this authority to a publisher because they're not going to do a good job. Even if they care about you, they have to do a book every two days. So you're still going to be the head of marketing for your book. You're still going to be the head of of strategy for your book. So how do you learn that? Well, you learn it by doing it. And the easiest way to do it, do it under another name if you want, is to come out with a book a week on the Kindle to figure out how to build websites that get people to click and sign up, to figure, I mean, it costs nothing to do this. It costs less than it costs me to mail my proposals to book packagers, to book publishers. So what are you waiting for? This moment, there's all this milling about and sometimes someone raises their hand and say, yeah, I'm over here. And that act, you know, you're showing up every day doing a podcast. It's an extraordinarily generous act. There's not a short line between here and success. There is a long line and you're on it, but you're learning every time you do it. How much does it cost you to start doing a podcast? Nothing, right? But there's all these other people who are waiting for Podcasting Central to call them on the phone and say, will you please do a podcast? And no one's going to call.
1: I was one of those people for about four years, I think, before I I finally did get around to starting the podcast and fantasized about it for so long. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I guess the one thing that that I was surprised by, though, when I did try to go the traditional route, was that the feedback that I got, um, to me was was very insightful. Was like, wow, this person really understands why a person buys a book.
0: Yeah, and, they're good at it, and
1: how to title it, and they just get right to the heart of like why it's not working.
0: But there's if the, you if you look at yeah. behind me, you know, there's all these bestsellers. Every one of them was a surprise. All bestsellers are surprise bestsellers. There's no one in book publishing who can point to a book from a new author and say, this one's going to sell a million copies. They have no clue. They know how to make it to the 80% level. They know how to make it professional. But if they were that smart, they wouldn't need the author. They would just go to the people who are all going to be bestsellers and they would win. doesn't work that way. As, As William Goldman would say, nobody knows anything.
1: So I think that the thing that holds people back from doing like you said, uh, and you know, releasing a book a week, or you know, this is what holds me back from doing something like that, is fear that I'm going to do this work and I won't get the rewards and it's going to be uh, doing the work without uh, knowing that the reward is going to be there. Are there ways, are there techniques to break down that? It's very easy to tell somebody, just go ahead and, and do this, go ahead and face the fear. But are there actual techniques or ways that you can break that fear down so it doesn't cause you to run screaming in the other direction?
0: Well, let me tell you the way that doesn't work first. Reassurance. Reassurance doesn't work because you need an infinite amount of it. That so, it, Someone can give you reassurance for five minutes and then 10 minutes later you go, oh, no, no, no. So the, the, the number of times you need to be told by someone you trust and respect you're going to be fine is too high to even ask for it. For me, the alternative is generosity. That that is an excellent antidote to fear. That if you are doing this on behalf of someone you care about, the fear takes a backseat. So if you want to figure out how to make books, go to a charity you care about and make a book for them. Because now your fear feels selfish, right? That if you wanna figure out how to make marketing work, go market for an organization that you believe in. That if you can find a lonely person and make them unlonely, a disconnected person to make them feel connected, you can make a practice of that. And the upside is it helps you walk straighter and stand taller.
1: Yeah, I think this is something that I'm able to access every once in a while is, or this is kind of what keeps me going, is that yes, I I do want things to be successful, but when I find myself in that place with that fear, I like to go back to, all right, how is this going to help somebody? Right, exactly. Um, and I think a lot of people hold themselves back from publishing or trying things because they forget to try that posture, and also because they they think, oh, I'm not an expert. On do you have any do you have any thoughts on the I'm not an expert? Uh, well,
0: you know, if you Are going to get your appendix out, you probably should get it taken out by someone who's done it a thousand times. But even that doctor, she took an appendix out for the first time. And how many appendices did she take out before you would consider her an expert? That everybody who does things that we care about started not knowing how to do them. And yet people are willing to go along the journey. That activity is essential that you are being rewarded at the beginning for trying. You're being rewarded at the end for being a professional who's done it a hundred times before, but Bob Dylan has never sang that song the way he sang it yesterday. And that new album from that artist you like is new, meaning no one heard it yet. And so it wasn't the right answer until we find out it is. And so you can rationalize your way into understanding this, but now I'm getting close to reassurance and I don't want to
1: reassure you. <laughs> um, that's great. Okay. So I, I wanted to get this question way sooner, but I, I'm still curious about it. One of the things that I have sort of stolen from you in, in, in watching you speak is I realize that you use props. You, uh, I saw you speak in Chicago once you bought a rubber chicken when you were talking about the lizard brain. Uh, I've seen you, you take blocks, a hammer, uh, a, a, a vinyl record, using props, and I think it ties in kind of to this this branding that you did with your head of, of burning a concept into somebody's brain. Is that what's going on? Where did you get the idea to to start using props in your talks?
0: Okay, so PowerPoint was an accident. PowerPoint was invented by engineers to make it easy for other engineers to see what they were thinking. And then it got bought by Microsoft and it got adopted by corporations around the world and turned into a tool of deniability. That the purpose of PowerPoint is to put a lot of bullet points on the screen, leave your deck behind. And later, if someone says, you didn't tell me that, you can say, I did too. It's on page four of the deck on the third bullet point. But It stopped being a method of actual communication. I saw this a really long time ago, and I reinvented how PowerPoint could be used. I hacked PowerPoint and started making slides with nothing but a picture on it. And that was considered really controversial. I wrote a book called Really Bad PowerPoint that explained how I did this. And the model is pretty simple. One part of your brain sees pictures. One part of your brain hears words. It doesn't make sense to show either part of your brain the same thing twice. So if I'm reading you my slides, the part of your brain that sees pictures is seeing nothing. So instead, I decide to create tension. Here's a picture. Now I'm talking to you. Do they match? Well, sometimes they match, but sometimes they conflict just a little. And that tension is how I get to you. So if I show a picture of a kid falling off a bicycle, and I'm talking to you about daring to try something for the first time, They're both about the same thing, but they feel different. So that's how I began. And it would be, I would do a talk with 20 or 30 pictures. And I would use the pictures to remind me what to say next. Then I kept adding pictures because I discovered my audience liked it if I went faster. So now I use 195 pictures per hour when I give a talk. And I can give the talk five times. It will always be a little different. And people don't mind. That the pictures are about the same. Sorry. Because I'm telling you a different part of their brain. Well, once I started using pictures, I said, wait a minute. This is sort of a picture, too, right? I can just hold it in my hand instead. So that's how I got the props. But I don't use props a lot, I use them very judiciously.
1: And I think it ties into uh, you use a lot of examples, a lot of stories in your in your books. And I think that is another way of injecting concepts into a person's brain and really right. getting them burned in and, and allowing them to digest what you're saying. But I've always wondered how do you collect and organize all of these stories? This is much easier than people
0: think. If you know, you need stories, you will find them. You just are on alert. You notice a thing you, go, Oh, there's a story I'll use one day. If you're story hunting you're going to find stories to capture.
1: So you, you see a story and you say, oh, that goes along with this, this theme that I've been thinking about that I might write about in the future. Right, or
0: and sometimes I see a thing and it says, wow, I see a theme there that had never occurred to me before. And I would, so, you know, Lionel Poulain was a dear friend of mine. He's the most, he was the most famous baker in Paris, an extraordinarily gifted individual and he died in a tragic helicopter crash. And I decided I would honor him by dedicating a book to him. But I did not have a book in mind. I wasn't actively writing a book. Lionel's picture caused me to write the book Purple Cow, not the other way around, right? That knowing that this human being existed was enough to make a whole book. And I think almost anybody can do that. It's just about choosing to see it. If you have a toddler in the house, you can take three minutes of a toddler's life and say, what lesson did I just learn that I could tell somebody about? Because there's so many things to teach people that have nothing to do with biology and chemistry that are about our humanity. And we don't need very much inspiration if we're brave enough to say, what I do for a living is tell stories.
1: Now, I don't want to get into talking about Stephen King's pencil or anything. There's, you know, a, a tool that that will make people think there's some sort of shortcut. But how do you physically collect your stories? Doesn't matter. They're all in your brain. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so this is a Stephen King's pencil to you. Okay. Um, so you wrote Purple Cow because of... Of that person was, was that one of those acts of sort of generosity that, that, uh, you use to help yourself face fears?
0: Yes, it was, um, at the time I had been kicked out of the book industry. No one wanted to publish my book. And so it's not like people were calling me on the phone and saying, would you write a book? Uh, and I didn't need to write a book. I had stuff I could do for a living. But it was important to me to build this testament for Lionel. And that's what I wrote it for. I didn't write it for me. Okay.
1: Um, This next one, I I don't want this to sound confrontational, but I think there's a a lesson in it somewhere. Okay. Um, Is that you're obviously a very extremely busy person and you took the time to be on this show. And over the last couple of years, I asked you a couple of times, you probably don't even remember, and then this time you have come on the show and, and not just been on the show, but you, know, you were extremely generous with your time. You, you know, We set up a whole hour long talk. Why did you come on the show this time? Oh, um,
0: the only way I know how to be generous the way I want to be is to say no to people almost all the time. Because... Otherwise, you're just going to be giving the people you say yes to short shrift, right? Uh That's why I hate uh when people want to do a selfie picture, because there's 30 people in line. How much time are you supposed to spend on each selfie? Right? Because if you spend two minutes on each selfie, that means you're going to, A, stand there for an hour, and B, person number 30 is going to wait an hour. So I want to spend like one second on each selfie, but then I'm doing a bad, sorry, that's the, it'll go away. But then I do a bad job on the selfie. Well, I feel the same way about podcasts, right? That I wish I could do 10 podcasts a day, but I would do them poorly. Uh, as to what uh, redeeming quality you have as a human being, I'm loath to tell you, I don't know. I, uh, if you want me to reconsider my answer, I will reconsider and maybe send you a no next time. I don't know. It's
1: fine. I, I, I'll, I will take just simply being lucky. Uh, what was the last book that you read that changed the way that you saw something? Um, Well,
0: I just reread this because I'm making a new course about marketing that's coming out soon. And it reminded me, I don't know if it changed me, but it reminded me how bad marketing textbooks are and how useless the introduction to marketing is and how unhelpful it is.
1: It's called MKTG. It doesn't it's matter. Like I, read five, I read
0: five textbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and lately I've been reading a lot of, book of books about conceptual art. Uh, I just read this book over here, What Art Is by Arthur Danto, um, and a different book about with a similar title. And they helped me see um, how conceptual art, modern art, if you want to call it that, is a fundamentally different creature than a Rembrandt painting. And what happens when we divorce craft from insight? Uh, because it's easier than ever to do craft now. That I used to be good at setting type and doing layout, but now everyone's pretty good at it. So being having that craft isn't worth very much anymore. So we have to keep seeking new frontiers that are emotionally difficult because computers are going to get better and better at craft.
1: So it's about the concept more than it is... uh, Like you're saying, craft is uh, not scarce, but something conceptually uh, stimulating is. Right, exactly. It's kind of the... um, the thing you hear when a lot of people look at conceptual art and they say, oh, my, my four-year-old could do that. And they're missing the concept. Correct. Were
0: That's there any examples exactly. from that
1: book that that you remember? that? Well, were I mean, my the, ar-
0: the artist, I think, who ended art as we know it was Marcel Duchamp. And after Duchamp. The urinal. The urinal, uh, the whole um, Rose Salave. And the, the little, uh, box with the, uh, sugar cubes in it, the, um, the nudes descending staircase is where the whole thing starts. The point is after Duchamp, the game is a totally different game. After Duchamp, we're no longer discussing craft. And if you were going to make a piece of art after Duchamp, you better have something more original to say than he did with the urinal. Otherwise, we don't need you because we already have the urinal.
1: Do you have a final message to kind of wrap up our conversation today for people out there who are, uh, looking to find the courage to listen to that voice in their head and do something remarkable?
0: Yeah. I don't think you need more time. I think you just need to decide. And if you're not willing to decide, then stop wasting your time pretending. Just begin, merely begin or surrender but you don't need more data, more reassurance, more insight. You merely need to begin.
1: You don't need any more podcasts. Yeah.
0: I hate to Um, say it, but it's true.
1: I agree. For some reason, we still feel like we need more information and we need more inspiration. Or how many times do you have to hear the same message before you're actually able to turn it into action? And I know I've found in the past, like whenever I finally do find the courage to, to take that action, then then all of a sudden that information that I read before I, it, it, if I pick it up and, and try to read it, it, it doesn't resonate the same way that it did. I mean, it just falls flat.
0: I hear you. Well, I think the work you're doing is generous and I hope it's resonating with people. And David, thank you for spending the time. I hope, I hope we made a ruckus.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. And is there any place that you'd like people to find you?
0: Well, the new books at your turn dot L I N K. And, uh, I hope people check it out. It's doing pretty well.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Seth.
0: Cheers. Bye bye.
1: I hope that episode with Seth Godin has you thinking differently about how to do generous work. You know, every once in a while, an episode really just like flips a switch in me. And this one is no exception. It actually gave me the courage to uh, start writing my new book getting art done, which actually, that makes me think of something. I I want to start kind of compiling some of the uh, favorite moments from Love Your Work so far. So I know I have some of mine, many moments that have changed the way that I do things and that have inspired me to actually take action. So what have been those moments for you? Think about what was a time when you heard something in Love Your Work and you just kept playing it in your head and it actually changed the way that you did something. So... Let me know what that is. Email me at david at uh, Let me know what the thing was, who was the guest, or was it something that I said? And uh, how did it change what you did? What, what action did you end up taking? Um, you can email me, david at And bonus, if you uh, send a voice memo, you can just use the voice memos app on your phone and you can email it. And then maybe I can play it on the show at some point. Anyway, if you liked this show, this episode with Seth Godin. You will probably like my conversation with Jason Freed of Basecamp on episode one. And Jason will help you find the courage to be yourself. So one of our partners, originally one of my partners in the business is a guy named Carlos Segura, who's a graphic designer right, in Chicago. Yeah. And he has a line that says communication that doesn't take a chance, doesn't stand a chance. That's like his motto. And that drove us early on, which is like, sick take a shot. Like, what do we have to lose here? About like, What what we actually have to lose is not being ourselves. And that is a bigger loss than being yourself and not getting traction. Again, Jason is on episode one and James Altucher's episode is great too. James is of course known for his brave and bold writing. And he gave an absolute clinic on writing on episode 53. Like real
0: writing is about, is about, you know, being transparent and open and, and having a conversation with the world that's real and not, and not fake.
1: Again, James is on episode 53. And if you appreciate all the work that goes into making this show, you can help support it. One way is to subscribe, 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 whether it's on Apple podcasts or overcast or wherever you get your podcasts, just hit the subscribe button. Another is to rate the show on overcast. It's really easy. Just tap the star icon on this episode On Apple Podcasts, just go to Katavy.net slash Apple, click on write a review, and click on the star rating, and you don't even have to write a review, it just takes a couple of seconds. You can also join Love Your Work Premium. You'll get access to episodes before everyone else. You can even get ad free interviews weeks in advance. And you can get your name or business mentioned in the credits of the show. For details, go to Cadavy.net slash premium. That's Katavy.net slash premium. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavi. The theme music for the show is More Streets, performed by Spiderflower. Love Your Work is a production of Kadavy, Inc.